Hey everyone, welcome to the 409th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Alex Schwartz. Check out his website. He's a filmmaker, R.A. Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z dot com. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlo. Today we've got a rerun episode, which is pretty rare. Do you listen to rerun episodes? Yeah, I will. I will, for sure. I've never, yeah. we've never done a rerun episode, but script notes. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Which I listen to periodically does a lot of them. Dakota Ring will do that as well. Like popular episodes, episodes that really hit. Yeah. Or in our case, I think one from the archives that is pretty old. If you're a new listener, you probably haven't heard it unless you really dug deep back. Back from 2020. So post-COVID starting. Sure. Uh, different era, a lifetime ago, it feels. Um, but Warren, why are we rerunning an episode? Well, I think one of the things that is evident from our podcast, though we never really spell it out. We talk about community a lot. We have a film community, but really like our careers are based largely on like relationships we have. And uh, we actually recorded a new episode that was supposed to come out today that was like set up to come out. And edited. Edited. Thumbnails and might or might not have been made. <laughs> I don't know. Posted. Um, yeah, it was ready to go. But um it basically, I, I've kind of come off of a long string of really fun, great productions, and I hadn't talked to Matt in a while, and I just kind of thought it was a good time to like vent about every issue I had with every production. And uh, last night, coming off of another production, I was thinking to myself, why am I venting about these like amazing opportunities I had? Everything went really well, and me just kind of making a podcast episode about like the various challenges I faced. Seemed like a conversation I would have with you, but not on a podcast. And, I, you know, I have relationships with all these people that I'm making things with. And I want everyone to realize that, that we're positive and excited about things. Um, and I think, you know, I was venting, you were venting. And in my mind, I thought if somebody that we know listens to this episode, it might sound like we're just complaining a lot. And we have we did get, you know, an, an Instagram message <laughs> recently from a, a listener that said, he thought we complained a little bit too much on one of our episodes. <laughs> so we thought, let's run an old episode that we both really liked. It's director Amanda Rowe. She was a co-EP on the Nancy Drew show. She's a TV director. Do you remember that episode well? Because there's one moment I really, really liked from that episode. Can you guess what it was? I have a guess. What's your guess? There's an anecdote from the story where she went out and like shot a film kind of off the cuff that ended up breaking her into her whole career. Like, she just shot it um, out in the woods, I think maybe solo, and used some kind of experimental facts, basically, like stuff through glass and, you know, maybe some lens whacking, stuff like that. And that's what uh, 
what got her launched. What what launched her? Yeah. So that that was cool, but no, my favorite part was the fish story. She had read a screenplay that described a fish doing a very specific thing, and I was like, "How on earth can you get that shot?" Yeah. And she explains exactly how she did it, and it's like the stupidest, best like, way oh, you can do it. Duh. Of course, that's the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, so we're gonna replay that. It's Amanda Rowe. It's a really fun interview with a TV director that's just like really smart and rational and logical and resourceful. And I think it's fun. I also want to mention a producer that both you and I have worked on. I just worked with her recently, Alexandra Henry. Uh, She's been on the podcast. She's also a filmmaker. She made a movie called Street Heroines about graffiti writing uh, all over the world. And it just came out. It's on Amazon Prime. You should check it out. Street Heroines. It's really cool. And she's really cool. And, you know, Matt and I would love to work with her again. (laughs) Shout out. Hi, Alex. How you doing? But before we get into our conversation with Amanda Rowe, we have one final piece of housekeeping, and that's patreon.com slash justshootitpod, which is the place where if you find some value in the show, uh, you can throw us a buck or two. Do you feel like the way you segued into that, where you pause and then you go patreon.com slash justshootitpod, people might think we're just editing a rehearsed <laughs> Patreon chunk into the episode? I think that if you listen to how poorly constructed the Patreon plugs are, there's no way you would think that we had scripted them or constructed them for... That they're just dropped in. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. This is sloppy enough. No one in their right <laughs> mind would decide to do it this way. Yeah. I try to make them a little sloppy just so people know they're bespoke to each episode. Shaggy, I think, is what people like to say. Shaggy. Um, but I, I'm sure you've noticed that we're starting to plug people at the top of the episodes, not just saying their names, but also plugging a website or something like that. It's just a small way that we can say thank you to all of our uh, subscribers and listeners and the people who help keep the show alive. So if you would like to have your name set at the top of an episode, shout it out. Uh, with a website. Know, with a website, Instagram ham- handle, that sort of stuff. Um, let us know. And you can go to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod uh drop us a line and we'd be happy to do that at any tier any level and even if you are already a patron send us a message and we will plug your site if we haven't done it already so thanks again to our patrons you keep us going and without further ado let's get into it here's amanda rowe in the film How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Timeline that we're used to of people spending hundreds of years trying to get their first paid gig. You've had a pretty meteoric rise, right? You're like a co-EP on a TV show. Now you just graduated film school nine years ago which is recent in Hollywood time. How did you do it? I fell ass backwards into it. Um, I, I can only attribute it all to the fact that I have just been making shit since I was a kid. And the short film that got me my first job in television was one of probably two dozen little short films I made that year. I made it for 50 bucks in an afternoon. It was three minutes long. And for whatever reason, people really loved it. And I mean, my philosophy at the time and to this day still is just like throw enough shit at the wall, like something will stick. You know, you're going to make mistakes along the way, but all of those mistakes are lessons and you become a better filmmaker for doing it. Can you tell us about that short? Yeah, we got to dig in on the short for sure. Like, what's a $50 short that gets you a TV gig? I would, I'm going to write this down. Well, it had a good twist. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to, like, I don't honestly know why this one of all of the little shorts I'd made uh, it turned into what I did. I mean, the, the actual logistics of what happened were that little short film ended up in a bunch of film festivals all over the world. Can you just give us the log line? Uh, mitten, I can't, it's like three minutes. It's a guy is walking through the woods and he finds a mitten covered in blood and then something happens like in the end. I like, it. like I can't, like it, it kind of ruins it if I is tell you. But it's a three minute short. Come on, you can't ruin it on a podcast. We're talking about you've done all this TV. You directed the 100 for crying out loud. You can't tell us, you can't spoil a three minute short. So uh, it's you just can not, say no, it's not, Sorry, it's just not going to be as good if I tell you what the ending is. The whole, the, the, the whole thing is that it's a, you just see a guy walking through the woods. You don't know, he finds a mitten and it's covered in blood. And he seems really fascinated with it and seems to have some sort of weird, like, you know, like he's afraid because there's a little child's mitten covered in blood. And I'll just ruin it, whatever. At the end of the film, he walks towards this big tree and there's a big pile of leaves and he starts digging through the leaves and a human hand is there. And then he puts the mitten on and he the goes... The hand that matches the glove. And then he yeah. goes, I found your mitten, sweetheart. And, and that's it. <laughs> oh. That's, that's Ugh, Creepy. That's good. <laughs> that's so good. Hold, so I want to keep digging in, though. So when you say a bunch of film festivals, are we talking the big fancy ones we've all heard of or like a lot of great regional ones? What was the biggest festival you played? The one that got me my job in TV was the After Dark Festival in Toronto. Although I was in, like, because I was like a little three minute short film, here's advice to young filmmakers out there. 
make one to five minute short films because festivals are just looking into fill in slots and make that time work. And my film was three minutes long. So in a lot of horror festivals all over the world, and a lot of film festivals, they were like, perfect, this is good. It'll fit right in there. And so I ended up- Or you up- can even play it before a feature, right? Like Absolutely. They're, I mean, they're just looking for stuff to fill in that time slot. Like, it's it's a lot easier. And another really fucking good piece of advice. Sorry, I'm swearing already. A, a good piece of You're advice. You're a genre director. You can swear, you know. <laughs> yeah. Hell yes. Um, if you make a little tiny short film that's one to five minutes long, email the festival directors directly and say, look, I can't really afford the admission fee can you watch, can, can like, is there anything you can do? Chances are they'll watch your three minute film and if it's good, they'll say, yeah, no problem, fine. You can be a part of it. That's great advice we haven't heard on the show before. Yeah. Like no one ever talks about waivers. That's you can literally, point. yeah, say it will take you longer to respond to me than to watch this film, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's how I got, I mean, uh, Mitten, the name of the film is Mitten, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, which was actually, I, it was originally a contest submission because the ABCs of Death, I don't know if you guys know those films, the horror anthology films, every time they did a, uh, a movie, they would release a letter to the public and be like, okay, it's the letter C and you have to come up with something. So the letter was M. And it was just like, I was constantly entering these contests. I was constantly, just because it was, it gave me limitations. It gave me rules to work within. That was fun. And I love doing it. And like I said, my philosophy has always been throw enough shit against the wall. Something will be good eventually. I love that so much. Tell us, uh, in terms of scope and size, right? You're throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall. Do you have a crew? Is it like you and your film school pals? Is it like you alone in the woods? What sort of, is it an iPhone? Does your uncle own an Alexa? Alexa. Well, it depends. It it depends on the project. It always depends on the project, depends on the people I'm talking to at the time. Um, I a thousand percent believe you can shoot something beautiful on an iPhone. I think you can shoot something on like a high eight tape and make it amazing. Just if your idea and your intention is great. Um, Mitten I made with four people. It was like, I'm not kidding. It was literally an afternoon. It did not seem like a big deal, but it ended up really like significantly changing my life. Wait, but did you have to dig a giant hole under this tree in order to get the person's arm to be sticking? No, out? what we did, I literally, we, we, it was fall. So we like We've piled a bunch of, of leaves here in and I had, but yeah. I had, I, no, I was in Toronto. It was right. fall in Toronto. I'm saying we don't have that here. But yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I lived in California for a while, and I resent that. Um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> but we, like, did a pile. We just, like, built a big pile of leaves and then had a wonderful volunteer put her hand through the leaves and hold it very still while she was getting eaten alive by, you know, late summer mosquitoes. But it was, yeah, it was very... Very, very small, very just sort of like, well, I'm going to do this thing. I don't know, whatever. It'll be fun using the resources I have. I, uh, I mean, I grew up making movies when I was 10. I started like just working with what I had. And even as a television director now working on shows where like I've got $11 million, I still have that sort of backyard filmmaking mentality. And uh, it's extraordinarily useful. So I, I want to learn more about how you take that mentality with you into television. But before we get into that, I have a, a couple tiny more questions about Mitten and what happened afterwards. So so Mitten, you, you know, you don't have big auspices for it. You make it on a lark. It turns out it's good, right? And it's like playing a lot of places. What I want to know is after it starts building steam, right? What And you said it changed your life. 
how did people reach out to you how did they did they see it through the film festival tell us literally did you get a phone call was it an email and from whom my guess is somebody called you and they're like, we've got a movie, an M movie. <laughs> you, we're looking for an M director. Yeah. No, it's it's actually like, it's it's actually pretty cool. The um, So Netflix at the time was doing their very first original series. They were with... called Netflix back then. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was uh, called Hemlock Grove. It was a horror series produced by Eli Roth. It, this was Netflix's first foray into television. Yeah, it's like it's like House of Cards hadn't come out yet even. Yeah, yeah it was like this really, is really way early. Way back. Right. It was like yeah, 2012. Yeah. This is like way, way back. Yeah. And uh, the uh, producer-director of that series, uh, David Strayton, saw my film and saw that I had made it for 50 bucks. And at the Where time... Where did he see your film? Like at a festival? After Dark Film Festival. Okay. And that's that's the Lionsgate one, right? Or it used to be connected to them, no? I have no idea. After Dark, it's Toronto After Dark. All I know is it's a Toronto horror festival that I am loyal to every year since I was like 16. But so he saw my film and then he read my blurb where it said I made it for 50 bucks in an afternoon. And he had at the time been trying to convince Netflix that he needed one director to do all of these nightmares. Because in season two of Hemlock Grove, uh, there were every single episode had a nightmare. And at the end of the season, you find out that all these nightmares are coming from a singular source. And he didn't want a bunch of guest directors coming in and putting their spin on these nightmares. He wanted one director to do all the nightmares. And he was trying that to convince... That would be intercut into each episode. Exactly. And he was trying to convince Netflix to hire a unit for that. And they were like, nah, bro, you're like super insane. That's crazy expensive. We can't do that. And then he saw what I did for 50 bucks. And I still to this day don't know why he had such blind faith in me. But he was like, this girl, she can do it. She can make something cool for 50 bucks. And I was invited into uh, a room full of producers. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I was wearing overalls, which is hilarious. I looked, I looked very, like when I was, I was think I was 22 years old or 23 years old. Like I looked very, very young. I probably looked 15. And they were like, who the hell is this child? Like what, what, what is happening? And they gave me a page of script and they gave me a camera and they basically were like, all right, make us a nightmare. And so I did. And I made it in my backyard. So they wrote they wrote something for you. No, it was already written. It was already the like, this is the nightmare. This is what's going to happen. And, they were, and this is the thing. They were all these sort of supposed to be these abstracted dreamlike images. But essentially, I because I had already been doing this for so long by myself, I knew about I had a bunch of like tricks, you know, like passing a piece of like broken glass in front of the lens or, you know, like I, I already like my brain worked that way. And a perfect example of it is there was one line in the script that was uh, a fish is gasping for air at the edge of a, of a dry riverbed. And uh, I got that shot and the producer director, like, so, so basically after I submitted it, like Eli Roth, everyone was like, this is great. We need more of this. And like that day, Wait, how I, do you, how do you get a fish to gasp for air? I literally bought a fish at the grocery store and added like fishing line to its mouth and used Wait, it like a puppet. a dead fish? A dead fish. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Like a grocery, it was, it cost me like $6 and I just like used it like a puppet. And it was so funny because the, the producer director was just like, 
oh God, how did you do it? Like we've been dealing with this shop for so long. Like Peter was gonna get involved. And like, I was like, dude, like I just bought a grocery store fish and it's because they're mine. No animals were harmed. No, no animals, <laughs> not, not by me, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not by me. I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it was just this, you know, because they're so used to the, the bureaucracy and the rules and, and having to spend this much money, the idea of going to the grocery store and using a piece of fishing line on an already dead fish just never occurred to them. So that, the fact- that is legitimately crazy. That's yeah. bonkers. And I think it's yeah. respectful that you used fishing line instead of any other sort of wire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we call, we call it monofilament in the biz sure. for some right, reason right. Yeah, to yeah. make it sound fancy. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so a producer doesn't like strike. Like, we don't need fishing line. Get rid of that. Wait, so right. just in this story, so you don't have like a production designer, an art person or anything that you lean on. I you had, just- so I had a crew of probably nine people. Um, and I, I really got to do like film school filmmaking on this set. Like I just got to be creative. We got to like experiment with like, dude, like I, so I did like these nightmares for Hemlock Grove. And then after that, I got hired to do like the murder visions for Minority Report. So I was in this like really weird niche of like, this girl knows how to create bizarre imagery for nothing. And like, we just experimented, like we did like here like one really cool shot that i love to talk about is we uh the dream was a guy was gonna fall off a bridge and drown right so how do we visually how do we how do we express that visually we put a uh basically a piece of plastic or a piece of glass in front of the lens and poured a water bottle all over the front of it shot it at you know 200 frames a second and had a guy silhouetted against a white psych jumping off of a trampoline and then like falling and then as the water fell his silhouette just turned into this sort of fluid watery thing and it was just this sort of like i don't know what that'll look like let's try it and i got to do so much of that on the show and so much of that on minority report like i learned so many cool easy interesting tricks in terms Wait, did of did you ever shoot stuff that you're like nah that, that doesn't look like anything interesting oh absolutely all the time but that's the i mean that's why you just do like i said just do everything so they <laughs> so they kind of let you play i mean i'm assuming now when you're doing a show like the 100 or nancy drew you don't get to try out like 10 different things right no, I don't get to try out 10 different things, but I definitely do try things. I mean, if anything, like television for me is a amazing playground where I get to experiment and I get to use the toys and you have to be smart about the choices you make. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go do something that's, especially because it's not my money in it. It's not my show. Um, I have to be uh, a little bit careful about the risks I take, but it's calculated risks. Well, and I imagine if you had a crazy idea, you could maybe do the lo-fi prototype on the weekend or whatever, just to see if it would work before you wanted to prove it to someone or something, right? For sure. We test stuff and like, but I mean, honestly, just like trusting your gut, like when you think like, you know what, this might work, like it usually does. Going back to the mode where you're in this kind of nightmare creation sort of world, are you doing much digitally or in post or is it all kind of these in-camera tricks that you're experimenting with? Everything I did on Hemlock Grove and Minority Report was in-camera. Mm-hmm. We did everything so, in-camera. Yeah, that's and pretty I'm cool. Still, and right? I still love in-camera stuff. Like I'm... I, there's something, I love magic. Like I'm, I, I'm super, I want to be a member oh, of the magic castle. It's a great card game. 
<laughs> I'm also super into, I'm super into Magic Gathering. I play a lot of Magic Gathering. Well, yeah. insult <laughs> failed. <laughs> no, it's a great game. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm into like actual, like, I mean, the first uh, guy to do special effects ever was George Melies. That was like, what, 1904? He was a magician. Right. There's yeah. no difference between special effects and being a magician. And I love that stuff. Well, I magic love... is real is the difference, but yeah. <laughs> I just, I think that the mad, like movie magic is when, when the person in the audience doesn't know how it was done. Do you find that the practical applications rather than digital make them feel different in some way? I think that, I, I mean, I'm a, I can talk all day about VFX and I love VFX. Um, VFX is a color on your palette. It's not the end all be all. Like it, it, it's sort of in the early you know, in the early 2000s, it sort of turned into this thing. We all saw these really depressing images of George Lucas against green screens versus him against all of his puppets and stuff. And it was like really sad. But I, uh, I actually, my thesis film in film school was an homage to practical effects because I, when I was in film school, the Red One came out, Avatar came out, and I, I felt like the film that I had learn to love had been sort of disintegrating. And um, my film teacher, my film school teacher said to me, Amanda, you're, you're a genre director. If you're in genre, you have to move with the way the industry is going. And he introduced me to uh, Steve Spaz Williams, who invented VFX. He did the VFX for Jurassic Park, Terminator, The Abyss, all that shit. And I got to sit down and have dinner with this guy. And he really like explained to me how when he did these films, he did them by himself. Like he didn't have a program filling in the blanks. He didn't have the zeros and ones being filled in. He had to build these elements from clay. Like the, I mean, I could talk for hours about the shit he told me, but you should probably just talk to him. But he, he essentially taught me that, and, and he said, I have faith that the film industry will understand that VFX isn't it. It's a part of it. It's just like George Melies compositing. It's no different than we did in 1904. It's the same philosophy, except instead of using scissors and tape, we're using a computer program. And it's just, it's like a VFX shot does not work unless you have interactive lighting, interactive action, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's just a part of it. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's an amazing tool that keeps evolving, that is making television and film, like, so exciting and awesome and we're just getting more tools as we go yeah i mean every any vfx person you ever meet will tell you that like the practical the more you can do in camera the better so do you join the dga and stuff when you're doing these nightmare videos so i didn't join the dga i joined the dgc so the directors guild of canada which is oh. it's, it exists it's a thing never even thought of that i know we exist i'm i'm dga now as well as dgc um, at the time I was, like I said, I was like super young, fell ass backwards into it, tons and tons of luck on my side. And I literally like, I got the job and they were like, I needed to be a member of the union. So I called up the DGC and they're like, oh, I was like, I'm on this show called Hemlock Grove. And they're like, all right, here's your membership. Whereas like, you know, most of the time you got to like build up a certain amount of hours and get sponsors and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have to do that. Um, but I did have to, you know, the first time I was ever on a television set, I was directing. And that was a 
a real learning curve. And I wasn't, and I wasn't just, and, I, and I'll say like, I wasn't just directing nightmare units, which were like my very comfortable film school, nine people. I was also directing like full on second units where, on a TV show where I had a crew of a hundred people. And like, I, I, I vividly remember my first time on set, I was directing, it was like a news piece. It was supposed to be playing on a TV in the background of an episode, but I had like three picture cars, like 30 background. I had a crane. I, I remember someone coming up to me and asking me something and I was like, this isn't my first rodeo, but it was like very much my first rodeo. Like I had no idea what I was doing. Fake it till you make it is real. Yeah, I, I want to make sure that we're tracking correctly. So you do Hemlock Grove and then you do Minority Report, the TV show. So then the second you, you were doing was relatively soon thereafter or like was there a gap of time in between? How did that go? Oh, there was a major gap. I did season two and three of Hemlock Grove. And then... Uh, and is that like your full-time job? Like that's all you're doing is Hemlock Grove? That was my full-time... Yeah, because it was every single episode. So it was like a kind of cool, unique situation where like they had a full-time second unit, special unit. Where that was, yeah, that was my job. I did Hemlock. And this is like 2012, right? Yeah. So 2012, that's way pre-Me Too and all that stuff. Do you feel like as a female director, like that was a challenge for you? Like that people had low expectations or oh, anything? Oh, everybody thought I was sleeping with somebody. It was funny because it, it like everyone asked me this question, but I was like, I was so out of my element that I didn't even allow myself to notice I had people on the set who were so outwardly awful to me. And only in retrospect, when people told me afterwards, did I realize that that's what I had gone through. But I had just been so fixated on doing a good job that, like, I didn't notice and I didn't care. But I assume you also must have been, like, really nice to people, right? Because I think I, I think that you see this happen a lot where, like, an independent filmmaker that's used to small crews is, like, really amazing at their job. And then they get this opportunity to work with the nine person and that million dollar budget or the hundred person crew, you know, the $11 million budget and they are having trouble because people aren't letting them do what they're used to doing. And so to, to succeed, you have to get along with people. It seems like, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think, and I still am like that. I'm, I'm still very, very nice. I mean, I, I mean, filmmaking is a, it's a team thing. You know, if I wanted to just do it myself, I'd paint a picture or write a book. Like this is a team-based medium. I love my crew. I love having all their perspectives and I need to make them feel comfortable enough with me to be able to say, Hey man, it wouldn't be cool if we did this. And I need to be, and I need them to not be offended when I say no, so that the next time they come up with an idea, they can say, they can give it to me and not feel afraid of it. I mean, my, I, I am definitely very kind on set and nice on set. I mean, the other benefit of that is like when I'm not nice, you know you fucked up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah, like, whoa, yeah, yeah. like Amanda's yeah, mad. You, that must you like, mean you it, must have really fucked yeah, up. Yeah, you know? yeah, for sure. Yeah. Or just we don't have time to try, you know, your crazy yeah. idea. Sometimes you don't have time. I'll say thank you. That's a great idea. But no, we're not going to do that. But yes, I, I was and I am. I've always been uh, a very nice person. I mean, I'm Canadian as well, which, you know, <laughs> adds, adds to it. It's built it. in. Yeah. It's right. definitely built in. But on Hemlock Grove, and I'm, I'm fine saying this, like Hemlock Grove was like a very like masculine environment. It was a very masculine set. And I very much stood out like a sore thumb. Like I, uh, everyone was like, what is she doing here? But 
I mean, we were making great things and I had certain allies on the set that, you know, were looking out for me and, and making sure that my stuff was, that, that I was being heard. And I have to thank those people as well for all of that. But I just didn't let it affect me. Did you have any practical experiences where like someone did something that like helped you help, help bolster your voice in some way? You know, like what you said that you had a, a handful of allies who really made sure that you were heard. Are there, were there specific things or tactics that they used that you maybe use now when you need to like amplify someone else's voice or anything like that? Is there any like practical sort of uh, technique to it? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I was working on one show where I was, I had one shot in mind that I was trying to do and it was a sort of a practical special effects shot. I had one way I wanted to shoot it and the DP sort of kept talking, being like, oh, why don't we do it like this? And why don't we do it like this? And it was... It kind of confused me because, you know, he's the DP, he's been working for this long. Am I thinking the wrong thing? Like, I don't know. Like, that's that's something that, like, even still I have to battle with. It's like, does this person know more than me? Like, maybe I should be listening to them. But one of the, the art PAs literally came up and just said, like, wait, wait, why don't you just listen to Amanda for a second? And then everyone took pause. And then I was able to explain exactly what I wanted to do. And then it was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then we did it and it was great. And what that was for me was like, when I have an idea in the beginning and I'm confident about how it works, hold on to that idea. Cause you're gonna get a million voices coming at with how they can do it, how they think it should happen. One thing that you forget constantly as a director is nobody is inside of your head. Nobody is in your head. You sometimes you come up with a scene. You're like, well, obviously that's how it's shot. You know, obviously sure. they see it. Why like this, bother but explaining? Because it should be apparent to everyone, right? Exactly. Yeah. But that's that's not the case. Everybody has their own unique mind, which is a, which is why we all work together. All their unique minds come together to make a beautiful product in the end. But ultimately, as the director, like if you believe in something, initially you're probably right stick with it and don't like letting never in my career has anybody has has someone said something that has made me doubt myself that has made me change my mind that I haven't regretted afterwards I always regret not listening to my instincts yeah I am exactly the same way and I you know we've been all of us have been doing this you know between 10 and 20 years and I'm, I'm still on set sometimes where like the DP will be like why don't we just shoot it from here? It'll be way easier. It'll be better. It looks better. And you're like, yeah, it does look better. And that would be easier. And then you're like, but wait, but my whole point of this shot is to see these two things together. And now you're trying to change everything. And it's also as to cut into this last. Yeah. And it's, you do find yourself sometimes fighting for yourself. We actually, we just talked to a directing duo yesterday, a couple that directs together. And that was one of the advantages they have is they can back each other up and say, wait, but that wasn't, our plan and this is why because it's really easy especially when you're younger and newer to get derailed by the dp that's shot 30 years of tv yeah. you know what, what's especially hard about it is that also it's not like you're always right right your instincts are one thing right but then sometimes someone will bring up you know a, a different solution and your instincts will tell you oh that's what i should do that's right. And that feels very similar to the thing that you're describing, Amanda, where someone has undermined your instincts and are, you're questioning it, right? Like there's a difference between following your gut when there's a, a new option that seems great versus 
getting under your skin and they feel so similar that it can be really hard and, and it complicates things. They feel similar, but I, I ultimately, I think it's the same thing. It's, it's the same thing as if somebody comes up to you with an idea and your gut tells you that's good. That's good. Go for Go it. Go with your yeah. gut. Yeah. You know, and, and like, that's what I was saying is like working in film, you want to hear everyone's ideas. You want to hear what hair thinks. You want to hear what everyone thinks because they're all looking at the monitor. Uh, with a hair completely is different... always talking to me about how to light my shots. Damn hey, it, hair. I had like, I had a really cool experience. Uh, hair. The reason I said hair actually specifically is because it kind of taught me a lesson. Um, I was doing shadow hunters and um, Nancy Warren is the head of makeup and hair on that show. And she, I had this one scene with this guy. He's like particularly, he's like hanging from chains and he's looking like particularly angry. She came up to me and she was like, should we like spike his hair up? You know? And I was like, well, I don't know what, didn't it look like this? The last scene? Like, why would we spike his hair up? And she was like, well, when I did Wolverine's hair, I was like, oh <laughs> shit. Okay. When I did Wolverine's hair, you whenever really he was, liked it spiky. <laughs> well, whenever he was angry, she pointed all of his hair towards the front. So all of those lines from the eyebrows, you know, all of that stuff going down, that all, it, it turned to a point and it just became a little extra little nugget that we as the audience are subconsciously absorbing. And I like, that to me was like, that moment to me was like, every single person on this set has a perspective that is valuable to telling that story. Also, you know, uh, special effects makeup oftentimes looks best from a certain angle right in the same way that like stunts would be like ah, if you really if you take a step to your left with the camera it'll sell the punch better like all of that stuff speaks together for sure all of it does i mean it's a it is a collaborative medium and you should be in film because you want that well so okay so you did hemlock grove then you did minority report and then you jumped into shadow hunters and siren and cloak and dagger and all these kind of high budget big set piece tv shows I'm curious, you know, you're one person. How much control do you have over, like, you know, there's a scary guy in chains, like like the wardrobe, the chains, you know, like what everything looks like, the locations. Like when you're working on such a big TV show with so many moving parts, how much is the director saying like, oh, I think the chains should look like this and I think the wardrobe should look like this? Or how much of it is... Like, I guess, what are you focusing on as a TV director on these kind of big set piece shows that you have to shoot in probably eight days or something? Yeah, usually eight days. It's always different. It's always like show to show. For me, the most important thing always is the story and the characters. Like, what is what is the story that I'm telling? Every show has rules, even if those rules aren't written out or explained, you just sort of understand them via watching the show or just how the crew acts uh what the network or the studio expects there are shows that you know like, what do you mean by the crew how the crew acts like when like if they're kind of turned off by an idea of yours well i very excited about it well idea? no i like i for example um i don't have any control over the lighting I can say something like, I want it to be dark and moody, or I would like this to be bluer, or, or, you know, I'd like this to be colder versus warmer. I would like to, to change. You the can say silhouette versus. Yeah. Soft, but like, like there's, soft, but like if the show has a specific lighting style that I think is ugly, like I can't tell the DP mm. we're changing which it. Which show is that? Which show is I that? Can, um, what? Line is a feather? <laughs> I'm not telling you anything. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But like, but that's the thing. Like I have to, the way I always describe it 
for at least with television is uh, it's a coloring book. They've given me the lines, and I can use whatever colors I want at whatever density I want, but I have to stay within those lines. And as a director on, in television, especially because I did not like intend to be a television director. I, you know, I write, I direct, I still have all the stuff that like I I have a voice as a filmmaker. It's about fitting within that coloring book, and then doing it the way that you can do it within those lines. I think that because I've directed television for so long since, uh, you know, literally like straight out of film school into TV, I've kind of learned how to embrace the limitations and love them and kind of, I'm a little bit addicted to them. Like I like when you, t like COVID, like I'm running a TV show during a pandemic and I weirdly like love it. Because I'm like, all right, we can only shoot like this way once. We only get two takes. Yeah. Like all the actors have to be six feet apart. Like I, but it's it's blow I, each other kisses, no mouth to mouth kisses. It's like a boss level in a video game. You know, it's like you think you know how to do this, but nah. Here's like the next, like here's the next shit, and like I love that. I I find it invigorating, and it's it it, it gives me more avenues to be creative. It's the engineering of it all, I guess. I'm curious a little bit. You were mentioning the rules and maybe some of them are unspoken. Are there other ways in which that they are communicated or ways in which you pick up on the on said rules besides just watching the show or observing human behavior? Yes. I mean, sometimes I will go on a show and I will have a, a producing director say, look, uh, I mean, OK, I'll actually give Nancy Drew as an example. Larry Tang, who was the uh, producer director before me, first day I walked on set, he was like, you know, like, we don't like, we, we like, or, or less setups, more takes. Like, let's, let's spend the time on making the performance great. And we have seven main cast, right? So trying to get as many faces in that frame at once and, and you know, clever framing, let that camera move so that, you know, a two shot turns into a single rather than coverage in like three sizes that rather than doing that on each actor, like he had very, like, we don't like overs. We don't like overs unless they mean something, you know, like we like. Wait, tell, tell me what, like, why do they not like We were overs? talking so much about overs lately. It's so funny that you bring oh, it up. Oh, have you? Yeah, That's yeah. interesting. Because I also at the beginning was like, why don't, a lot of directors don't like overs. And I was like, why don't we like overs? <laughs> um, it's because, and I've learned this since, especially after doing a bunch of stuff that, and over is, it's not a standard and shouldn't be treated as a standard. The over should have cinematic grounding. If I'm over someone's shoulder, that reminds me that I'm in a conversation with them, right? Whereas if I'm on a clean shot of someone, I'm in that person's head. I'm, I'm that person experiencing that situation versus that person standing with another person. It's about like, you know, and, and like, you know how sometimes an over can just be like, it's a dirty, like, okay, you get a little bit of head here and shoulder here. That's fine. Maybe you've got more, like you've got more head and more shoulder and the person is just over your shoulder and that person is crazy intimidating. Like it's all, it's, it's, I think the fact, I think the reason a lot of directors are kind of annoyed with overs is because it's a reflection of the nineties version of television, which we had, you're doing your master you're doing this shot, you're doing this shot, and you're doing over, over, and that's how we cover it. And I think a lot of directors are just annoyed that that's the standard. It's not that the over is bad, it's that the over should have 
context. Yeah, I, people also talk about close-ups, right? Like I think there was a period of time where a close-up was an even more important piece of coverage in that like that cutting to a close really meant something whereas like mediums and wides were kind of where we were living a little bit more but i think now that we're watching more and more things on smaller and smaller screens i think a close is just part of the vocabulary in a way that it wasn't before i guess i like i don't i i personally like i don't like that i love i love a close-up to mean something like i love that if we're gonna be right there in the frame with someone's face we earned that and we're there for a reason because a close-up can be so powerful right and 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 letting I, I like I love a two shot. I love a fucking five shot. Like I love when I can see all the like I hate like it, just like cutting. And, and that's the thing is when you're shooting overs, you're shooting coverage. What you're doing is you're restricting yourself to cutting. You can't just play the whole scene out. You have to you have to cut. And cutting feels like something. And it's and it's about sort of being a little bit nitpicky about the cinematic language and 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 making those choices intentionally. Not and, and if you're making choices because of efficiency, then make it a moving camera master. Make it something cool that that like is that makes you feel like you're in the scene i think a lot of the the whole over thing is just based on a lot of directors especially older directors who worked in the 90s when tv got super popular and they were shooting you know a bajillion episodes a month right and like law and order you have a standard right you have a camera on a steady cam a moving master and then the two overs and they're all they can all shoot at the same time exactly right? like what are you even doing there as a director other than saying action and cut Collecting a paycheck. Yeah. I mean, you're asking for a yeah. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and asking for Or from what I've heard at the time, like a whiskey. Everyone's always like, ah, oh, back yeah. in the day. <laughs> bumps. Can you think of something worse than like directing with a, like a mild buzz? Just feeling a little slow? Sounds so terrible well, to me. I don't know. We've both directed in Kentucky, Matt, and I think you had a lot more whiskey. I did, but, well, but <laughs> not while we were, were rolling. That's for sure. The worst is, and I've only ever done it once, and I was in film school, is directing while stoned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't act well stoned. Don't prep well. St- well, no. Prep well stoned. Sure, sure. That's That's fine. Uh, homework is different, right? The homework is different. What, we just talked to the DP of End of the Fucking World. Do you know that show? Yes, I love that show. And the way he discussed their rules for covering actors was he called it putting the, the camera inside the dialogue, you know, as opposed to outside the dialogue, which is what made you made me think of when you're talking about, you know, when the camera is between people it's inside the conversation and when it's behind people it's outside of the conversation i think i mean i think that's a much more articulate beautiful way of putting it than i just did but that is exactly it like being clean on a character is it's it's about that character and not not about them talking to that character but sometimes it is about that sometimes it's about them pleading to the other character and you want to be over that character so you feel that person there it's just about like recognizing what the emotional beats are and then translating that through the camera but let me ask you and i know in tv it's a little different because you are shooting so many people so fast but would you rather have like a three-quarter angle clean shot instead of the over or do you i think part of the reason you shoot these overs is because you can shoot multiple angles at the same time that are maybe facing each other if you want to do kind of clean frontal singles, it's hard to shoot both actors at the same time, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, g- give me a clean single and a profile on my other one. I love a hard profile. Love a hard profile. There's and some- you don't mind cutting between those two? Oh, it looks beautiful. 
It, oh, it's totally fine. I, I, like, I mean, you don't have to necessarily be front on to shoot someone clean. You can just be over the shoulder of that person, keep them like separated enough. There's always two directions you can shoot from. And sometimes it's like, I mean, sorry, I was, I was incorrect. I'm not going to shoot the profile of the other actor. I'm going to shoot the profile of that actor and then their clean three quarter and then the profile of the other actor and that three quarter on that other side. And then I can cut those. So that those. you can light them separately. I light them separately, and then I can cut them back and forth whatever way I would like to. Yeah. I, I like that also because then you're not, whenever you, I would try to do like overs as crosses, you're always in that zone where you're you're fighting the other camera, right? Like you don't want to accidentally be, like you have to compromise both shots that way, basically, if you're, if you're in crosses rather than stacked on one side or the other. Yeah, I guess I'm like, I've kind of like in my own brain gotten into a system now where, you know, if I'm shooting the face of one actor, you know, a camera's doing that. One thing I love, especially if I'm in, if I'm in tight mode, if I'm like right in there in that person's face, then I put like a 135 on my B camera and we're getting your hands ringing. We're getting you like brushing your hair away. We're getting a fucking book on the shelf or you know, like there's, there's sniping off pieces, sniping off pieces, but pieces that are, um, it's the space between the words, the space between the notes, which is just as if not, which is just as important as the words, sometimes more important than the words. (laughs) On that note, you have done a lot of shows that are CW shows, right? Or Done a couple, kind of in yeah. that in that genre. The young, the youth. The, yeah, kind of YA, like so, sexy vampires, sexy, you know, scary uh, mermaids, that sort of stuff, right? Like it, a lot of genre stuff, like like cool genre stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how much is the network involved in like how you shoot the show? Because like they're all shot beautifully and it's all very very nice, but there there is kind of a little bit of like a CW look sometimes, and also the casting. I mean, the cast is just like absurdly good looking absurdly beautiful yes every single time can you cast some ugly people for me please? we try trust me i try we, we try <laughs> so does someone like the cw when you know it's a cw show are you shooting it differently than if you were to shoot for instance a nightmare sequence for minority report you know of course it's it's definitely it's always different like i said every show gives me different requirements you know certain shows want three sizes of coverage on every single character a single on every single character But that's actually the thing is that like the shows that require me to do, you know, tons and tons of coverage, everything in between, I can do whatever I want. You know, like how I shoot my master, how I, how I, you know, how I do all of my scenes like that. Like I can do anything I want as long as I get those three sizes, which is obviously limiting because time is a thing. Um, But then there are shows that, you know, have specific rules and are like really cool like you know i mean doom patrol is not ya but you know they have like a way they shoot their show that like specific rules on on you know how they do it and i try to watch as many episodes as i can going into a series so that i just sort of ingest what their language is and like try to do that but then like i inevitably i can't help it i'm still amanda so i'm still going to tell that story the way that i saw it in my head and how do you do you use any cool tools to plan out your blocking to plan out your shots like do you if you are doing a cool moving camera master do you diagram it do you use shot designer pro do you have to show it to the showrunner before uh, i definitely never have to show anybody my shot like what like if i have a 
complicated blocking and camera move like I'll talk to my DP about it maybe if it's particularly complicated and needs more equipment and if we're lighting more areas than that we were than we were anticipating but if we're working within the equipment that we're used to working in then I can kind of just come on and say this is what we're doing uh, I personally I do sort of top-down shot maps overhead very very rough I just write them on a piece of paper once so that's in my brain um, and then my process is uh, the night before I shoot, I go to sleep and then I think about the scene over and over and over again in my head. And I think about where A camera is going to go after my first setup and where B camera is going to go after my first setup and how I can maybe marry those into like the same setups. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it is kind of algebraic to, to me. Like it is, it is kind of like the, the factors and the variables, like the, the variables being what I want, like where I want the camera to go and the factors being the story. And I, I don't know, I just, I, I come up with that depending scene, some scenes it's the night before other scenes, it's weeks before because it's more complicated, but. And so for your strategy, you've been to the location, right? You know, if it's on a, a stage. Yeah, I was going to say you've, you've had like a tech scout with people as well. So it's, it, you know, you've been able to kind of walk through with say the DP and say like, well, what if blocking looked something like this? You know, you talk through the gear with them, you right, know, a cool direction or we want the window behind her or something right. here. Right. How, what's your strategy for like, setting up a blocking with seven people on a scene like Nancy Drew. I mean, it is like, it is, it's, it's algebra, but it's like visual algebra. And I like, it's honestly like, it's my favorite thing. Like I love like, okay, say we've got two people, we've got a 50, 50 shot, two profile, like profile 50, 50 shot. And then character B turns towards camera. Cause he's got a thought walks towards camera. That becomes his single with the other guy over shoulder, then he turns around and it becomes that guy's over. And then he walks past him and then turns around because it becomes his over. Like, I love that shit. I think, I think there is an elegance to efficiency. I think there is something about making, making the camera move around with the blocking of the actors that ultimately makes your edit more fluid so that when you do cut, the audience doesn't notice unless they're supposed to, at which case maybe you jump the line or maybe you like jump cut or get to like a much tighter shot. Like I prefer that you don't notice the cut until I want you to. And that's what for me, the, the most beautiful thing that television has taught me is getting something done in a short amount of time will often if you're smart about it, will give you the most fluid, beautiful shots. And do you, so when you, you're kind of creating these beautiful frames and compositions in your mind, you're diagramming them, are you also thinking of the motivation for like why this actor is walking in that direction, why this actor, and then do you have to tell like, the actors that like oh maybe you think like you don't want to face him anymore so you're gonna walk to the counter and just I mean like actors don't want to feel like meat puppets right and 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 also like if you give them something that feels false like that fish yes like that fish which was a literal meat puppet but you don't want to give them a direction that feels false because everything will feel false. The more context you can give the actor, the more reason you can give the actor to live in the moment and not remember where their mark is and feel like they need to go to that mark, it feels better every time. And if you're, do and if you're doing something that makes the actor feel like they shouldn't be going there, then you need to rethink what you're doing. It's telling to me that even when you were kind of walking us through this hypothetical you said like, oh, the character has a thought which motivates 
their their next mark basically right so like thinking through the motivation that compels a character to do these things i think is maybe the thing that's easy to forget when you're just trying to build cool shots and it's the difference between making something that makes sense and also that so that the actors trust you right like you don't want them to lose confidence in you either that's yeah that's so so majorly important ultimately the characters are what matters it like the story can be cool you can have a great plot but if we don't care about whether or not our protagonist survives then like screw your great plot it doesn't matter like we need to care about what they're going through and they need to feel real and like honestly like you when you say something like you know a beautiful shot yes you can have a beautiful like you know the light is beautiful and the composition is great sure that's a beautiful shot a more beautiful shot could be one actor against a white wall giving you like the most amazing performance ever and then that is a beautiful shot the actor the acting is so so important the visual is something that we as directors do to like enhance that and make that amazing and really bring it home but if that doesn't work then none of it works in my opinion i've been thinking a lot and we've been talked been talking about it a lot on the podcast of what makes a cinematic show cinematic versus like a youtube sketch youtube you know we talked uh, to someone about that recently and i do think one of the things is like when when you see like a film school short or you see like an amazingly shot YouTube video that's shot on Alexa and lit with like an 18K and, you know, everything's perfect. But you're noticing that the characters are blocking themselves in a way to create this beautifully composed shot, but you don't quite know why they're blocking themselves like that. You know, that's to me when all of a sudden a show doesn't feel cinematic. Because I, I was watching, somebody sent us some trailer to their indie film, you know, and it was shot really nice on anamorphic lenses and everything. And then I was watching The Boys, the show on Amazon Prime, which I love. And it's like, why is this shot of The Boys of like a close-up of a person? Why does this feel like so much better to me than a close-up on this shot when they're using similar lenses, similar framing, similar everything? And I, and I think it's what you're saying. It's like the performance in the story is like I'm, I'm with the character and I believe that they're here, you know? And yes, the art direction is great and the lighting is great. But the art direction and the lighting is pretty great in this indie film too. But there's something that feels cheap to me. And yeah, I think it's, it's about that. the the editor and the director making the decision that you should be looking at this shot right now versus everything else we shot. Right now, you need to be with this character. You need to hear what this character is saying. You need to see their face or their hands or whatever, you know? Like, it's about navigating that moment emotionally and then using this visual language that we're all so fluent in to make it better. Yeah, and it's why a $50 short film can get you a TV career because you're focusing on something that resonates with people as opposed to just like a beautifully composed frame. With the, but I mean, awesome isn't camera. that like for me, at least for me as a filmmaker, like my goal is to, you know, reach other people and, and, and touch other people. And it is the most, like, I can't tell you how cool it was. Like the first show I worked on, Shadowhunters, had like, this insane fan base, like insane fan base. Like I have like, I have fans. I have like six of them. I have like literally like six real fans and they, you know, watched my scenes and, and, you know, like, like I had one girl send me an essay about 
like theory about the color in my shots, which was like, what the hell? Like nobody cares about TV directors. This She's is like, insane. Oh, you're, you're right. That, <laughs> I am smart. Good call. Yeah. But it's but but what it is ultimately is like you're you're telling a story. You're 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 telling a human experience. You're telling. I mean, most of the time. I mean, not all movies, obviously. But like sometimes a vampire experience. Sometimes right? an animal. I don't know. Whatever. But like for the most part, we're trying to share human experiences, and that is that is the end all be all of it. Like you can like I I mean my entire family are artists. I'm very I'm classically trained in terms of like the visual. Like I love the rule of thirds. I love all that stuff. I love I love color palettes, color balance, all that kind of stuff. But in the end, it's it is really about the story you're telling and and using our cinematic language to take that script, those words, and turn them visual. Yeah, I, I, I do think, though, most directors, even new ones right out of film school and everyone, and I mean, Matt and I work a lot in advertising, and it's like every creative director is like, it's all about the story. It's all about, like, you know, like everyone knows that it's supposed to be about that, but then you see these kind of newer filmmakers and they're just so excited by the toys and by the magic hour and by this and by that, that they get so distracted that they it's it's just really hard to keep focus. I think on that's that fair. I think I think it's, it's it's fair to get excited about all the tools and stuff. And like, I'll tell you, like, even like the, the fact that you say, like, everyone says it's about the story, like, you're right. Like, literally everybody's like, it's about the characters, about the story. But if everybody really understood that, then every single TV show would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean that in a disparaging way. Like, I I meant that there's people like you that can get past the other distractions, you know, to actually do that. And it's, and that's, it's hard. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it for me at least is like, I was like, I'm a, I was a huge, like, I'm a nerd, you know, like I love Star Trek. I love Harry Potter. I play video games. She's talking to us on a gaming headset right now. (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm, I like, I'm, I'm, I'm the reason I'm a storyteller is because I'm a story consumer. And I'm just trying to make cool stories for other people that can like enjoy them as much as I enjoy the stories that I'm told. You know, I'm just trying to like build in that universe, I guess. Yeah, play in that sandbox. And what's great about that also is that you can you still get to appreciate and enjoy all of the the fandoms that you're a part of still. Do you know what I mean? I think it's easy for people to think like, oh well, now like this big TV director, they don't have time to like love the things they used to love. No, I think people love them even more, right? You know how hard it is to make the things that you love that, you know? Like, the admiration only grows, and, like, that relationship only deepens, I feel like, over time. Right, and you want to pass it on. You want what you experienced when you watched, whatever, Back to the Future, you want them to experience when they're watching Shadowhunters, Yeah, that's, right? that's, like, that's, I mean, like, that's the whole reason I do it. And, then, and honestly, like, I kind of, I definitely fell ass backwards into the YA universe. It was never my goal. I was never, like, I want to be a YA director. But you love genre from a young age. I've always loved genre. I still always love genre. Like, And YA is genre. It's, like, genre with very good-looking teens. You, yeah. you keep saying you're, you're lucky, and I, I think that luck is a thing that we talk about on the show sometimes. I think you did all of the things to set yourself up to be ready for the opportunity that arose. But the thing that is interesting is that I feel like your career has the the true luck is that YA and genre kind of coincided as you were coming up. Do you know what I mean? Like so there there was opportunity to do what you love to do the most 
at the time that you were ready to do it is pretty incredible for sure. But like YA, YA wasn't vampires and mermaids and and like or or superheroes. You know what I mean? Like the Arrowverse wasn't a thing not that long ago. I was I remember being at Comic Con the year that Twilight was there. And it was like a, a distinct shift in terms of what fandom felt like. And people were mad about it. That movie blew people's minds because no one was like, oh, you can't make a girl-led right, teen yeah, exactly. story and put and in the movie theater. Like, and then it was like the number one movie for like five weeks. I saw that movie three times and I still can't tell you what happened. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. But but in terms of like a cultural shift, right? Where like it used to be that like Comic-Con was for dudes, and like people who care about superheroes or whatever. And that was like the beginning of opening it up to a wider audience. That's a that's actually an interesting point. Like I wonder if part of the like the YA nerdverse has come into such power is because like women were kind of welcomed into it or like girls were kind of welcomed into it. Like Buffy is like a big sure. one. Buffy was yeah, huge. Yeah, Buffy's probably, that. that's probably the... Yeah, um, Buffy was kind of like an outlier, I think, yeah. at the time. And and Buffy appealed, you know, who it's like a Joss Whedon show, right? I think it, I don't think people think of Buffy as a YA show right like traditionally just because but it is the, but it, it is literally the foundation of every ya show that exists now every ya show is like you know like buffy right right <laughs> but i think the the money that controls like all of hollywood and what gets made is when they saw that twilight can get young you know it, like very young like young teenagers to go spend money and female teenagers to go spend money and it doesn't have to be a horror movie like or a date night thing or like a superhero thing, but it can actually be a story that's meaningful to like a, a different audience than you've ever accessed. I think people were like, oh, wow, this is like we should we should stop ignoring these kids that are talking about their favorite books. Right. I mean, Harry Potter, like there's there's a, a giant um, list of books that change things. But I think Twilight is when people realize that, you know, like you said, you saw it three times. You don't quite know. It d- doesn't have to be an Oscar caliber movie to actually have like a huge impact on society if you're talking to these underserved this underserved audience right i would argue that harry potter did it because like when twilight came out um twilight was like i mean harry potter was like a huge i remember when that first movie came out and like i skipped school for the first time it was like very like you know like it was i wore a costume it was like very very exciting like i had never cared about anything that much before in my life but that was you were at an age where your parents had to take you to see the movie no i was not that i'm i was 16 15 i saw it by myself really when the when the chris columbus one yeah i was in high school i was in grade nine but i mean i would i mean i would just argue that like i think harry potter was like the beginning of it and then twilight was the like confirmation that like oh shit this is like a real thing i think that ya is at least the shows that i work on uh have tried to and are conscious of the people we're speaking to not all of them but most of them and i think that now at least a lot of the television that i'm making is influenced so heavily by the people watching it because they have Twitter, they have voices, and they can say that we don't like this, we like this, you should be showing us this. And you're actually, because of the internet, seeing what you're watching changing because of what the audience 
feels. Right. And you're also learning that those shows are appealing. And I think to me, why Twilight is different than Harry Potter is because Harry Potter is like, you took your kid, like kids, it's a kids go to see it. But Twilight is about people that are making their own decisions and spending their own Are you a Twilight fan? Money. I'm getting this like, vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think the point is, is that like, there's a lot of cultural things that all sort of shifted together to all of a sudden mean that there was a lot of genre YA TV happening when you had the exact right resume for it. Right. But also like Amanda is saying, we also realized that like YA isn't just 16 year old girls. It's like actually 45 year old women and it's, you know, 25 year old men. And it's like just so appeals to so many more people than we was traditionally thought of. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because like if you look, so when I was in school, for example, like there is literary fiction versus genre and literary fiction is always sort of sort of regarded as like the fancier the more highbrow genre is always kind of like lower brow pulpy whereas i've always been of the opinion that if genre requires metaphor world building layers context like social relevance genre is so much more like layered and intelligent I think than just basic literary fiction you could take any and that's the thing is like any basic literary fiction story can be turned into a much more complex genre story and and I think Jane Austen and zombies yeah I just I just think like maybe the world is recognizing I think that genre is making a big big comeback right now because there's just so much more to it you know like and if you have the, the, the it's, it's, it's a combination because like I was saying earlier, like you still need those basic human emotions. You need that story. You need that reality, that truth for it all to be grounded in. And then when you add all of these like fantastical elements that can help you relate it all to your situation in a way that's more palatable because you can picture your depression as a dragon or you can picture your abusive husband as a zombie. It just makes it, it's like a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. Awesome. Well, I have one last question. I know we're kind of running out of time, but, uh, so now that you've been doing this for, so when Edward (laughs) said, (laughs) yes. So team Jacob, Um, I did. I have done a lot of Twilight related work. I'm not going to lie. That's uh, awesome. But, I love that. Uh, what, so now that you've basically your entire career has been doing cool genre TV shows, if and that you started in 2011, right? Like nine years ago, a different, a slightly different time than it is now. What do you see in TV now? And especially now being also a producer on TV and not just a director, what do you see as... Like if if I'm a, a young listener listening to this show, I'm finishing up film school and I want to be a TV director and work in genre and do these things. What, what do you think are important stepping stones or, or do you have any advice to people that want basically to kind of come up in a similar way that you did, but by 2020 standards? Yeah, make everything. Don't think your first film is going to be your opus. Like your first film is probably going to be shit. Like... Just make stuff, make mistakes, make bad things, because every mistake is a brand new lesson that you've learned that you're never going to do again. And filmmaking is so much about doing and you don't need equipment. Please do not invest in that fancy camera. Do not invest in those fancy lenses. Do it on your iPhone. Like I said, somebody against a wall 
giving you a great monologue can be a great film. Literally one shot. Wait, but you don't. But but if you could have like a cool hallway or a window or something, sure. Do that. Yeah, you know, it. obviously, like put all of your thought into everything, but embrace your limitations. That is my. That is my. Like, I wish I could have that on a T-shirt. Embrace your limitations. They are a part of your color. <laughs> have you palette. heard of T Public? You, you can have just shoot it on I'll a baseball I'll get one and I will wear it. Like. <laughs> we, should get, we should make an Embrace Your Limitations t-shirt. No, that's good. We Straight that's up Embrace idea. Your Limitations though. The, the best thing you can possibly do as a filmmaker is look at the limitations you have and use them as a color on your palette. Oh, your your mom has like a really cool living room and you have your one act, your one friend who like can play an angry guy really well. Write something to it. Shoot it. See what happens. Just use the tools you have. Do it all the time. Don't expect anything from it. Just work on yourself as a filmmaker because chances are, if you keep doing it, I mean, not chances are, this is again, I'm talking about algebra. I'm talking about math. If you make enough mistakes, you will be good and you will be so good that even if you don't make an award-winning film, even if you don't become mega famous, you will have the skills and you will have the proof that people will hire you. And do you think you should show people all these things that are mistakes? or is No. Oh, really? No. Be very selective about that. I have, like I said, I like before Mitten, I have like probably hundreds of films and I could recognize when I'm like, that is not good. We're going to keep that one. Let me ask, how did you recognize? How could you tell? Especially when you're younger, because it's like, ah, I really worked hard on this one. I really like the idea. And I know the microphone wasn't really working the way it should have, but. Oh, well, first of all, actually, this is a very important uh, piece of advice. Like I said, if you have a piece of, if you have like someone standing against a wall and you shoot it on a high eight tape and like the lighting is terrible, if your sound is bad, then you're done. Sound is like really, really important. Get good sound, learn how to do good sound. That is. That is the first thing that will take you out of anything. A bad shot won't necessarily. Um, but how to recognize whether or not it's good, I don't know. Like, sometimes you just, you just know. And it's, just, and it's also about not, you have to let go of your ego. It has to not be about you being a great filmmaker, like born and raised. It has to be about you being a great filmmaker because you've taught yourself to be that person. You know, it's it's a craft. Well, Amanda, we could talk to you for days and days, but we should let you go because we, you are prepping a, a, a big TV show soon. Before we let you go, though, can you hang out and endorse with us? Yes. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement is uh, the Instagram of uh, a fellow producing director, um, Nicole Castle, who did, she was the producing director on Watchmen. And she recently posted uh, a bunch of different slides from the pitch deck slash lookbook that helped her get the, the that season of Watchmen. I am going to be, and jealous. it is great. What is? How do you spell her last name? Because she is definitely not the Nicole Castle that I just looked up on Instagram. K A S S E L L. It's it's super cool. She you know like it's got visual references it's got all of the writing that she did on like figuring out how to make the show look and feel the way it does um and she's been posting them kind of slowly over the last couple weeks on instagram but i think she's done now um and they're all up there on her instagram nicole castle is her name if you search for her on instagram my thing recently has been uh, i haven't really been able to sleep uh i've had uh, you know anxiety pandemic all that kind of stuff 
I have, I have two recommendations under the same guise of things that will help you sleep. Okay, so it's all on YouTube. Uh, Jeff Bridges has sleep tapes where he's literally <laughs> like walking around his farm and he's like, there's a bird out here. It's a nice bird. Yeah, man. Like, and he's got that deep gravelly voice yeah. and like he'll be yeah, like, yeah. you know what? And he doesn't realize there's sleep tapes. Oh, yeah. probably not. He, they're probably just like, yeah, just messages he recorded on his on his like phone or whatever. But like, he's just like, you know what? There's people out there that love you. Don't worry about it. If you're thinking about that, don't worry. Like, it's just so soothing and amazing and an amazing thing to fall asleep to. And then the second thing on YouTube as well. Wait, so are you watching it or you're just? It's just to they're it? all they're just sleep tapes, and there's ten of them. There's okay. ten hours of Jeff Bridges just rambling on <laughs> on his property in California, and and it's the real Jeff Bridges. It's, it's not like an impression. It is actually Jeff Bridges. It's not Josh. It's Josh just, Rubin. Like it's not Bridges. Morgan Freeman. Just go on YouTube, Jeff Bridges sleep tapes. Oh my God. And you will wait. have the best sleep of your life. And then the second one I have, if you are a fan of Star Trek, uh, there is a 24 hour loop of just the engine hum. I uh, My life is currently changed because of these two extraordinary sleep aids. And I would like to give them unto the world. Well, those are great endorsements from both of you. Might as well give up now. I was going to endorse the weirdest thing of all time, which is, so I've always had this like weird thing when I wear glasses, my skin gets really dry on my face. And recently, because we're all wearing masks all the time, and especially when you're on set wearing a mask for like 14 hours or whatever, um, just my face just like gets really, really super dry. And I've tried like, I, I know nothing about skincare really. And I've tried all these lotions that you can buy everywhere. And then I just saw this commercial for CeraVe Moisture Cream. And, I, and it, everyone was like, I read, started reading and doing all this research and doing a bunch of, you know, reading a bunch of reviews. And then I bought this stuff. And it's like the only thing that works for me after I'm wearing a mask. And uh, now my wife uses it also. And it's, um, it's like if you're having a crazy dry face from wearing a mask all day on set, uh, check out the CeraVe Moisture Cream. It's like changed my life. I literally was like having like f- skin flaking off my face. And this is the only Man, thing. Man, guys, these are unendorsed, but you should get them endorsed. That was a great advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Amanda, where can listeners learn more about you? How can they keep track of what you're doing, what you're making? Well, I'll be completely honest. I'm not really an internet present person. I do have an Instagram. I, I if you want to look at my 35 millimeter photographs, because I'm a nine, like a 90 year old man, uh, you can look at my Instagram arrow dot photos. Um, other than that, I urge you to arrow dot photos. Arrow dot like, photos. Like the like a, like a bow and arrow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Arrow dot photos is my Instagram. And what about hello hello Amanda Rowe? Is that I mean that thing? that's gonna be my new podcast, guys. You'll be my first guest. There you go. <laughs> there we go. It's a and crossover then, episode, right? If now. people want to watch your Nancy Drews, are you you're in Nancy's P Drew on all Nancy's Drew, the second sorry. season? All the second oh, season. I, I directed two episodes the first season. Please oh, go to the CW app. Season one is free. Uh, I urge you, if you're a filmmaker, uh, you want to get into television, Larry Tang, who like set the tone for that series, talk about not shooting coverage. It's actually very interesting and it stands out. And we embrace the supernatural, the horror of it all. I'm very proud to be on this show and I think it's a little underrated and it'd be awesome if some of you guys checked it out. <laughs> and you're saying watching the show is a great lesson in not shooting over too it's much It's a coverage. great lesson and how to shoot seven people with one I mean, setup. 
I will watch it. Awesome. Well, we will have all of the things that we uh, talked about uh, on the show in our show notes at justshootitpod.com. And you can learn more about and be reminded of all of our great new episodes coming out across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. And I am at Mr. Matt Emmo. And I'm at O. Kaplan on Instagram, um, at SmiteyPileg on Twitter. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at justshootitpod at gmail.com. And the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Amanda. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.